0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702.
1: Let's walk
0: the talk. On nights 2.7 and
1: 106 FM. APSA CIB, the bank that provides customized treasury tools to manage foreign exchange risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Wonderful to have you with us. Looking forward to being joined in a moment by executive director at Corruption Watch, Karam Singh. So talk to us about that perception of corruption in South Africa. Um, it is the lead story in Eyewitness News today. And, um, yeah, we are alongside countries like Kosovo, Vietnam and Burkina Faso in terms of how the world sees us and our relationship with which is very intimate with corruption. Uh, Cash crusaders falling apart at the seams, it would appear. Um, Half of its franchisees have abandoned ship and started in a competitor brand. Uh, Pick up on that tale this evening. We'll talk Elon Musk and putting chips into human brains. We'll do the Africa Business Report. And Warren Ingram this evening, repairing, repairing, preparing for retirement. That's what we're doing tonight on The Money Show. Your questions, your comments, your input, you know the numbers. Join us tonight on The Money Show. The Money Show
0: with Bruce Whitfield on 702. 702.
1: Well, the World Bank's chief economist, no, the IMF's uh, chief economist, Pierre-Olivier Gorchinas, uh, saying today, he was in Joburg, saying global central banks are almost there to start cutting interest rates. He didn't specify on How long almost is. Elsewhere, the IMF has also been in forecasting mode, saying that Russia's economy is going to expand more quickly than anybody had previously anticipated. Uh, Vladimir Putin's military spending feeding through into wider growth. GDP forecast for 2.6% this year, more than double what the IMF had predicted as recently as October. Also um, slightly lower than the 3% expanded for that they have been anticipating in 2023. But certainly the Russian upgrade is significant and they're also expecting the US to continue to perform strongly. So those are forecasts out of the IMF today.
0: You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702.
1: 702. Your perception shapes your reality. If you believe something fundamentally, um then it is a fact burned into your brain and for anybody to change that takes uh, a work of supreme effort. If I asked you whether corruption in South Africa was in decline, in other words getting better or getting worse, I suspect most of us would say it's getting worse. Uh, the anti-corruption movement Transparency International's released its latest Corruption Perceptions Index, and it does suggest a very bleak picture for South Africa, which has dropped below the global average, and it's lost another two points, meaning that perceptions of public sector corruption around the world are higher. Than before, executive director at Corruption Watch, Karam Singh is with us. Karam, welcome to the Money Show this evening. Certainly, a f- lot more work has been done to battle corruption in the last five years than was done in the decade before it. Yet, we are still seen to be a massively corrupt society. I mean, that's a fair summary, right?
2: Yeah, that's right, Bruce. And I think um, you know, I think there is always a little bit of a double-edged sword uh, around perceptions around the fight against corruption, the more exposure you have of corruption. And we certainly have had incredible exposure in the last five years. We had the Zondo Commission of Inquiry. We had the release of that report. Um, you know, with, with that exposure, uh, you know, creates the perception that uh, corruption is on the rise. I think the challenges in terms of the messaging and in terms of um, you know, government initiative uh, altering that perception to say we're doing enough to stem the tide that, that progress, that we're reforming our public procurement system, that we providing more support for whistleblowers, that we have better performing municipalities. Um, You know, those aren't the facts of the batter, unfortunately,
1: Bruce. So what is the value, therefore, of a Corruption Perceptions Index? Because all it is is a belief. It's a belief based on, I'm hearing a lot about corruption in South Africa nowadays, not that I'm hearing that they're making progress or fighting back or pushing back or actually are getting some, not enough, but some convictions that actually things on the ground may be improving, but people believe it to be getting worse you know i mean
2: it, it, the the perceptions index is what it is uh, you know corruption is an incredibly difficult thing to measure um you know we can look at look at some hard numbers how much how much money's been recovered uh how many successful prosecutions we've had um, but you know um, that in and of itself isn't necessarily going to tell us either that we're we're winning the war so i mean i think the the value of the index is that it, it is drawn from a number of different sources. Um, we have a measure from year to year to look against, and we can also, you know, compare South Africa relatively to other other countries around the world where, you know, these, these perceptions are also coming in. So, you know, it's not a hard me- measure. It's not uh, not fundamentally objective, but I think it does, it does uh, you know, it is revealing to it, to a large extent in terms of where we are and you know, to what extent uh, is there a sense out there, even in the market, that we're we somehow making progress or otherwise?
1: So if we look at corruption and the reality of corruption, you guys are at the forefront of the battle against corruption, exposing corruption, pointing out where we're failing. Also, I'm sure looking out for success stories. From a data point perspective, are things, is South Africa better off today in terms of the battle against corruption than it was, let's pick a time, five years ago? Is there an objective measure that can suggest that, yes, we hear a lot more about corruption, but actually we are making some progress? I don't. I don't think that there
2: is a, a clear objective measure that that we could look to that could tell us that story, Bruce. I mean, I think we really need to look across a number of industries. I mean, one of the things that always always jumps out at me are you know are the reports of the, uh, the the Auditor General annually, and we see the number of municipalities that are failing annually, and it's not. It's not a picture that's getting any better. I mean, obviously, uh, uh, you know, dysfunctionality of municipalities isn't all about corruption, but absolutely corruption is a, is a big part of the story. Uh, we saw during, during the state capture era the challenges of state-owned enterprises. We know we're still keep battling with uh, issues around criminal syndicates and ESCOMs. So, you know, it's not clear that we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, and it's very difficult Based upon uh, you know looking at a whole range of phenomenon going on out there to say that um, that and, you know that we can sustain an argument that that uh, we, we we on the right track and things are getting better.
1: Certainly the world thinks they're getting worse and that's what really matters is people's perceptions of us Uh, from an investment point of view, from a a credibility point of view. Thank you, Karam Singh, uh, the uh, executive director at Corruption Watch this evening. Uh, We are also talking in a moment to Sikonati Manchancha. Sikonati is with us um, and he is now writer at large at News 24. You'll remember him from his time, of course, um, as the spokesperson for ESCOM. But that's all coming still here on the money show
0: the money show with bruce whitfield is brought to you by absa cib the bank that
1: provides a customized treasury tool to manage fx risk and reporting is a registered fsp whatever happened to the legal case by the vbs liquidators who sued kpmg an enormous lawsuit, 864 million rand plus interest, uh, because of the fact that there were auditors who worked on that account who were up to their eyeballs in malfeasance. More than 2 billion rand belonging to individual depositors and municipalities were stolen by bank's directors. Uh, it was a scheme that was fraudulently signed off by KPMG auditors. All this time later... How are we making any progress Well, Sikunati Banchanta is a financial journalist at News 24 is there progress are we seeing a payment likely to emanate from KPMG Sikunati
3: Bruce good afternoon there definitely will be a payment uh, coming from uh, KPMG to the liquidator uh, w- w- which is uh, Anush Rupal and that has been uh, that was inked yesterday that agreement it is confidential we will never know the detail if KPMG and Anush Rupal have anything to do with it.
1: Okay, so I mean, again, the secrecy behind these things—the secrecy that we were learning about behind Steinhoff and the fact that uh, the the Steinhoff team is still fighting to keep the secrecy um, there—it's quite frustrating because we need to understand the extent of fraud. We need to understand how it worked to try and prevent it from happening again. We do know that there was a massive fraud, and KPMG has had its name in headlines for all of the wrong reasons. I think more often than many of the professional services firms in recent years. It absolutely has,
3: uh, Bruce. Remember, KPMG uh, was key uh, in the in the state capture project, having worked for the uh, for for companies owned by by the Gupta family, having uh, legitimised that that rogue unit, uh, SARS uh, uh, nonsense, right. uh, the, uh, and and all of those. And it was internal auditor to to uh, to Ulet. and there were many others, including uh, Transnet, and indeed uh, some some issues that ESCOM, that uh, KPMG, should not be proud of. Uh, yes, they played a big role there. They audited uh, now uh, VBS Mutual Bank and allowed the bank to inflate uh, its financial position by some 650 million rands, uh, just creating that uh, or allowed the directors of KPMG, uh, of of uh, VPS yeah. uh, to create cash out of thin air. And, and, and uh, meanwhile, the bank was collapsing and uh, people were losing their heart and cash that had been deposited with, uh, w- with the bank. So, yes, KPMG has a lot to answer for this. And they have uh, sworn the liquidator to secrecy. They definitely will be paying up. The, the, the question is how much. And the problem here, Bruce, is that uh, we know how much people lost their 2.3 billion rand that was stolen from VBS mutual bank. How much is the settlement? That should be very important, particularly that uh, some of the money belonged to municipalities, which should never have been there in the first place. Mm. But uh, most importantly, the cash belonged to to pensioners, widowers and widows in the vendor area, people who had been saving their their mega income with the bank for about 40 years. And uh, one day they just woke up and the cash was gone.
1: You know, it's an. I mean, I, I, my my sort of blood runs cold still to this day, thinking of the implications for those people. And um, there was also allegations, and I don't think that we've ever had absolute proof. Certainly, there'd be no prosecutions, and I wonder what you know about the potential of prosecutions of key political figures implicated in connecting, being connected, certainly um, to at least some corrupt people within VBS, and whether there was personal gratification for politicians? Uh, Bruce, there
3: definitely was a lot of personal gratification for politicians. Uh, The the Daily Maverick uh, had a fantastic uh, series of stories about that, uh, implicating leaders of the economic freedom fighters. uh, And certainly the general media was also uh, uh, having a field day with stories implicating senior leaders of the ANC and indeed municipalities 13 municipalities in total in three provinces, Kauteng, Limpopo, uh, Northwest, and indeed Mpumalanga. In That's four provinces. 13 municipalities that deposited uh, a collective about 900 million rand that was lost. Nobody has been prosecuted. What I can say, Bruce, is that uh, only one person is actually serving a jail sentence. Philip Truta, he was the chief financial officer of BBS of, of Mutual Bank. He struck a deal, a plea bargain with the NPA, and is serving a jail sentence. The rest of his co-accused, 14 people, are still undergoing a criminal trial, which has not yet started. And <laughs> and I believe it is starting only in May. Uh, there, there, there's been a, a, a series of exchange of papers since 2021. Not a single person has yet pleaded uh, in the dock in that in that criminal case. And then, of course, the 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 auditor, uh, the, the key partner for for KPMG who was fired by KPMG, uh, was also arrested and has not yet pleaded uh, in court uh, on a a criminal charge. He will be facing over the next few weeks uh, a, a disciplinary process by the independent regulatory board of auditors.
1: Uh, for, for 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 his conduct on the on on the bank, yeah, it just—I mean—the the wheels of justice grind so slowly, and the, the huge frustration for people who lost so much money, um, and it's just—you know, you want to see justice done. We need to see justice done, and we have not seen justice done either in this case. But I mean, I recall uh, a guy called Jack Milne twenty years ago turning state's witness against Sue Bennett and Gary Porritt of Tygon fame, and uh, he did, uh, Jack Milne did his time, and he assisted the authorities and to this day there's yet to be a criminal conviction. It's a messy tale Um, but it's just this this huge inability to to prosecute even some very obvious uh, white collar crimes and and that is a a deeply frustrating series of outcomes. And it is getting worse, uh, Bruce. You see day
3: in, day out, the National Prosecuting Authority has to uh, uh, accept defeat every day in court and, and, and the courts have to, to let the accused go because of the inability to prosecute. There is no capacity in the NPA. You see all these high-profile uh, accused of, of, of criminal acts. In, in in all our state capture cases, those that have been unlucky enough to actually get arrested have been let go by the courts because no one has been able to properly prosecute them. So I suspect that will be the case here in, in, in the matter of... Uh, VBS Mutual Bank, it does not help that uh, uh, the the, the liquidator has agreed to a confidentiality settlement where we will never know the full detail of what was agreed to, of what KPMG paid, and and, and what they admitted to because there should be some liability and uh, if they were not liable for anything, there would not have been a settlement. They would have taken the matter through court, but they are obviously prepared to pay a lot of money to to
1: let it go away. Uh, And again, there's an element of pragmatism here which I I partly want to support because at at least there is an element of justice being delivered here. But the individuals who are the epicenter of this corruption are the ones who, you know, their reputations are in tatters and they're never going to get corporate jobs again. But chances are they've made enough money out the back door um, that if they never work again, they're not going to starve. And you, and you, you want to see that justice done and we need to see the justice done. We we need
3: to see justice done, Bruce. We need to see somebody convicted for the criminal offense. Uh, you, you should only see the images of those uh, people who had deposited their hard-earned money. These were hawkers, pensioners, widows uh, in, 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 in Limpopo that lost a lot of money. And, 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 and no, the people that actually stole the money are walking around like the kings of the land. Nothing has happened to them, and at this rate, nothing will happen to them. Uh, Surely, we need to know as well, what did
1: KPMG agree to pay uh, to to settle its liability in the matter? Uh, It's it's the public's money. and Absolutely. Thank you, Sikunati Manchancha. He's a financial journalist at News24. So I think we're going to add a third national sport uh, to our list of national sports. The one, of course, is own goals. The other is shooting ourselves in the foot. And the third national sport is impunity. You commit these crimes and you live with impunity. There are no consequences, not at least the criminal consequences that we'd like to see delivered.
0: The Money Show.
1: The Markets. Gwen McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. I suppose the big story today on the domestic market is the ShopRite trading update. And I think it ticked uh, lots of boxes and then carried on ticking boxes throughout the day.
4: Yes, Bruce. I mean, it's quite clear they're the leader of the pack. They're the best supermarket, best retailer in South Africa. Quite honestly, the best online, the 60-60s, that's growing by leaps and bounds. All the other retailers can learn a lot from how checkers, from the whitey days going back, I don't know, two decades, how they lay the groundwork, they spent the money, they got the systems going They trained their people, they got their labor relations right. So it deserves its premium rating to the market.
1: Yeah, and they actually had a good fourth quarter. Um, Unlike many people who said, well, oh, Black Friday was a damn squib and Christmas sales were a bit light. And, um, you know, them and I think Pepco came through and I think Mr. Price also came through with some mm. fairly impressive sort of Christmas sales. And it's all about the business model that you apply to the South African environment as to whether yep. or not you're going to be in the pound seats or, or find yourself with excess stock and find yep. yourself struggling.
4: Look, I mean, when you look at it as an overall comment of all the trading updates that have come out, they, on average, better than expected, eh? There weren't too many catastrophes there at all. You know, so, you know, maybe the consumer's not in as bad a shape. I know a couple of the credit retailers that you push credit massively to get their sales volume up, but they still got it up. And, I mean, TechCore's also come out now. They were, their results were okay, but they did well in December. And they're slightly backwards on volume because their internal inflation rate is 1% higher than their like-for-like sales growth. But it's still not a bad result. Yeah, It's still not bad.
1: No, exactly. And, I mean, uh, considering the the depth of the, the hardship that many households have been through over the last couple of years, COVID, and then top that with, with higher than expected inflation and uh, higher for longer in interest rates, So, anybody with any debt is paying a lot more money for nothing, just in interest, and uh, is yeah. uh, find, finding it harder to, and harder to service debts. Look, the
4: one good thing we have going into COVID is that uh, personal debt was not at, you know, Normally high levels, now, nothing like we've seen at previous sort of credit peaks, and so that that was the one bit of good news, and I suppose that's enabled the economy, despite all the various challenges that we had, to actually still survive.
1: Yeah, now absolutely, the IMF today is saying that the central banks are nearly ready to cut. How, what, is yeah. the, what is the the length of time of the word nearly? I was trying to work out, you know, in the Eastern Cape, if you say nearly, it's close. If you say nearly, yeah. it's a bit further. If you say nearly, that could be six months. Yeah. Uh, how many vowels do you think that the IMF is putting into nearly on this one? Oh, I
4: think the one in, in, in the mid-range there, Bruce, I think we'll see that tomorrow. I think they're coming in. I think I've in that maybe I'm being too optimistic. I still think they'll, they'll come quicker than the market's anticipating because whenever you're at the bottom, it's always lower for longer. And whenever you're at the top, it's always higher for longer. You hear the same story every single time. And it, it never stays there for too long. It either goes up strongly or falls quite quickly. So you know, that's the nature of a cycle, I suppose. But the other bit of good news that that is not necessarily good news, or well, I suppose is good news, Came out after the market closed is that transaction capital is going to unbundle we buy cars
1: oh cool so a separate listing for we buy cars
4: yes separate listing for we buy cars i mean it's they had to do something like that because we buy cars is the business now yeah and it is a good business despite the fact that their the latest results weren't that good then the volume turnover went backwards slightly but this is this is the business and then the rest of the Essentially, the SA Taxi and the debt collection, you know, they can just be separate. And, you know, the market will value we buy cars, so there'll be a huge value announcement tomorrow. I think, on
1: transaction capital. Uh, It's a piece of good news. It really is. and I know the team that founded We Buy Cars and they uh, were were very excited when the big brother, the listed company, came and bought them out. And they've gone a lot more quiet since that happened because, uh, you know, I think it's been a tough environment for them, a baptism of fire Uh, indeed. Thank you, Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank. There's a little bit of breaking news this evening. We Buy Cars will be a separate listing on the JSE. Um, And again, it's one of those sort of companies that's in the mass market. Isn't it? It is in uh, the, the part of the economy where people are looking for deals. So if you are in a, a Clicks shareholder, a Pepco shareholder, a Shoprite shareholder, a We Buy Car shareholder, it's not the fancy stuff. Yes, they've got fancy top end cars in the portfolios as well, but most of the twelve thousand vehicles that are sold every single month uh, within that We Buy Cars environment are, you know decent enough vehicles and they but they're not the most expensive of vehicles um, many I think the more expensive ones are probably traded in and uh, goes uh, say within the, the sort of um, the, the dealer market but yeah interesting moves thank you very much Wayne McCurry from Wealth and Investments at First National Bank
0: You're with Bruce Whitfield on 702.
1: 702. The astonishing story now of the revolution at the Cash Crusaders Corral. 78 of its 150 Uh, franchisees about a third of the total franchise footprint have canceled their franchise agreements they have started trading under a new brand they've launched cash exchange it's a dispute that has been highlighted in the courts the western cape high court uh, heard an application lodged by cash crusaders against its former franchisees and uh, cash crusaders wanted them instructed to come back within the fold however This is not going to happen. Uh, Fred Machato is chief executive at the Franchise Association of South Africa. Have you ever seen anything on this scale before, Fred, where franchisees get together, band together, and walk out together on the scale that they have? I think this is our first experience.
5: We have had uh, issues that came forth, but they didn't materialize to this level.
1: Because both franchises and franchisees uh, managed to find common ground. This is yeah, I think this is a, yeah, a, think, a very big fallout. Clearly, it's a fallout over who gets what slice of the pie. Um, if you've got a, a great franchise network and you feel as if you're fairly treated, um, you don't walk out. But I mean, with as many as a third of franchisees walking out, it does suggest that the model needs a revision, perhaps. I think uh, the unfortunate part is that you are not.
5: Uh, intimate with the facts or the the except God is in the media now. Yep. Uh, as reported uh, from the court or the judgment, the interdict. Um, but I think as the association, we encourage our members at all material times that where you don't find common ground, approach the association because we have mediators who are experts in franchising who could be able to mediate the disputes or the misunderstanding? I think. Um at times for us, we know that parties tend to choose the forums that they want to go. But I think mediation is the best service that we can offer as the associates.
1: Um, and, and how would that have alleviated this situation, though? Because clearly, these people are very frustrated by the inner workings of Cash Crusaders. I mean, and it's not you know just you know, one or two leaving; it's a massive number of seventy-eight. It's a very substantial. It's more than half of the total independent franchisees have walked out and have been willing to to take the consequences of it. Um, and the courts have said to Cash Crusaders, "Terribly sorry, but they've got a right to do so." I
5: think one of the major issues that we experience from this kind of issues is that artists must at all times, because understanding that franchising is a network, without the network, your business cannot survive. And we and we always talk about brand equity. We always talk about brand building. So there are issues that I think it is easier for one to let go in order to maintain their relationship and their business, because if you look at the numbers, it's a huge number, and that on its own has the potential to affect the bottom line. Cash, and, yeah,
1: they've, they've launched a, a, a competing franchise network called Cash Exchange. Has it rela? Uh, has yes. it registered with the franchise association? No, we. I
5: think it's still a new uh, grouping. Um, we don't know what they are doing, who they are. But as the association, our door is always open to engage and find out what is it that we can do for them, what is it that they need from us. Because remember, the association is for people with the same principles, with the the same thinking, with the same goals. So our door is open to everybody and anybody to come forth and say, as a grouping or as an entity, this is what we want to do.
1: So you would not exclude them provided they uh, answered some questions correctly. What happens if that upset cash crusaders who would say, hold on a second, but these guys left us in the lurch. You can't possibly include them in the franchise, in, in, within your franchise grouping, within the franchise association. Um, this smacks of the potential for some quite nasty sort of uh, politics to play out. Uh, remember, Bruce, and the association is,
5: a group of members who have the same ideologies who have the same goals so we we wouldn't say don't come to us we we won't we won't we listen to you because we don't know the, the the best issues that they have with uh, okay. cash crusaders and cash crusaders is our member we also have cash converters who is our member they, they are co- competitors or they drive for the same market So the same way as we have attorneys who are members. So you cannot say because this law law firm is a member. You as a law firm, you cannot be a member. So our doors are open to everybody to listen to the uh, proposition. Because I think that if you look at the, it's a huge number, Bruce. It's not one franchisee who's unhappy. We talk about 78 franchisees. So we don't know what the issues with uh, cash crusaders. are, and we don't know why those issues weren't brought before us. So if they were brought before us, then it would have been easy for us to comment on the merits and say, "This, is what you understand? We, we 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 couldn't make the parties agree on a certain time because it appears as though it's a time of the franchise agreement. So we are not uh, empowered to." Maybe interpret the, the terms and may, may make a ruling. Our role is to look at the conduct okay. of the franchisee or the franchisor.
1: Fred Machato, thank you. The chief executive at the Franchise Association of South Africa. Coming up next time on The Money Show, Growing Up Oppenheimer, Jonathan Oppenheimer, the heir apparent to the Oppenheimer fortune who started working at Rothschild and Sons, moved to Anglos, then to De Beers, then the family sold out of the diamond business and nowadays he's following in the footsteps of his great-grandfather and investing in African mining businesses as well as a whole bunch of other stuff and also involved in a fabulous initiative which is all to help small businesses grow via something called Oppenheimer Generations. Lots to talk about next time on The Money Show. Jonathan Oppenheimer. The gig life isn't for everyone, but it's definitely for you. The one who's always available with answers to where, how, and when. You, the family hotspot, responding to please, mom, please. Those connected to a multiverse of data, a tablet, a phone, a dongle full of information. Migrate to MTN Super Data and buy up to 30 gigs for as little as 215 Rand on Star 137 hash and play in the gig leagues. What are we doing today? MTN. Drive into
3: the future in the new Haval Jolion 1.5T hybrid from just 6,299 Rand per month. The Jolion hybrid embraces eco-conscious driving, reducing harmful emissions and saving on fuel, all without compromising on its 140 kilowatt performance and striking good looks. Available with a 10% deposit over 72 months at prime minus 4.24% with the 40% balloon. Visit dealassist.haval.co.za for full T's and C's.
1: The Haval Jolion hybrid electric vehicle. Intelligence in motion. Study for bachelor's, master's or doctorate degrees at Regenesis in Sentinel Online. Choose from law, computer science, business studies, public management and more. Regenesis is a global higher education institution with operations in eight countries across four continents. Receive world-class quality education and join their powerful global network of students from 190 countries. Secure your bright future with Regenesis and a job with top multinational companies. Enroll now at Regenesis.net.
0: 702.
1: Bruce is on The Money Show. Uh, Should I tell the story? Should I tell the story? You don't even know the story. You don't even know the story. So I was in um, a lounge at the airport this morning and I saw a chief executive that I hadn't seen for 20 years. And I was chuffed to see them. And I went over and I reintroduced myself and they looked at me with wide eyes. Then I noticed they had a pair of earbuds in. They were in a meeting in the Slow Lounge. Well, sorry if you're being... It's nice to see you anyway. Sorry for interrupting Sean Summers, your meeting, but it's good to see that you are burning the candle at both ends. Um, And yeah, the the turnaround process at, at Pick and Pay, I saw a little bit of it in action. Uh, yes, sorry for the interruption. Other people on the call. Uh, to Kit Sale we go now, co-founder and partner at Knife Capital. Um, what is being knifed at the moment? I think this is the first time since years, Kit, that we've actually seen a decline in investment, a quite a sharp decline in investment in dollar terms in uh, in Africa's tech ecosystem. The technology companies that have had all of this wonderful capital flowing towards them for a long period of time, that reversed quite a lot last year. What ex- What actually happened?
6: Yeah Bruce I think uh, there's a couple of um, you know information is not perfect in terms of the African uh, venture ecosystem but it, by all accounts if you look at the the 20, 2020 21 22 there were year-on-year increases there was a bit of a funding frenzy international investors were climbing into the continent um, all over the place and whatever whatever metric you use funding is down in the in the 2022 um funding cycle by sort of 30%
1: it, it's a significant amount of money. Do we know why? Um, did it go somewhere else? Did it not find any opportunities? What's the story?
6: I think the global sort of economic slowdown had a, had obviously an effect. I think when markets are frosty, I think people need to also just, just calm down and know that markets don't just go up and up and up, even in the venture capital space. I think some um, startups, um, specifically in, in fintech, were overvalued and you know investors when they when when balance sheets start running dry i think people do more increased diligence so there were quite a lot of smaller rounds raised um i think some of the portfolio um investors really doubled down on their own portfolios to say well how do we actually extend burn you know how do we create more runway towards towards cash flow positive and and how do we kind of basically sweat our own assets versus finding something new until until the until the market's kind of <laughs> multiples and those things return to normal or to the heyday. But I do think on, on one hand, it is down. On the other hand, you know, one can say that it was a much-needed correction um, in terms of a fragile ecosystem which is still building.
1: Uh, explain that, please, because we've got essentially – I mean, the big countries involved here, um, Nigeria, Egypt, there's a lot of really good work going on in Egypt, particularly with payments, South Africa, Kenya um, is booming in terms of tech. And those are, somebody calls them the big four um, of sort of tech investment opportunity in in Africa. What is the, the picture across those primary countries?
6: Yeah, I think, I think it's pretty much across, across all four there. There's definitely slowdown. I think South Africa itself has, has had maybe less, less of an effect. And it's basically because we are the, the forgotten fourth, fourth child of, of those three where, where international investors specifically are more, more worried about our political risk than they're worried about the entrepreneurs that we, that we kind of produce in this country. Um, but then again you know Africa are, is definitely a conglomerate of, of many many countries and specifically the the let's call it with all due respect sort of the second tier companies the Tunisias, Senegal you know Ghana in, in terms of Rwanda so some of those Uganda some of those countries specifically the francophone Africa countries have had maybe um, a, a fairer share of the of the pots in terms of where the money flows but it's not as if the money just went elsewhere. I think if you look at the total, total numbers of, of capital flowing into the venture capital space across the continent, it has slowed down, but it's not, it's a global trend. I mean, it's not as if it's the money now suddenly went elsewhere and Africa dried up. You know, if you look at, yeah. you know, I'm actually sitting in San Francisco at the moment, calling you from a, from the morning. And um, so I still have a whole work day ahead of me. And, um, yeah, I think when, when one looks at, at the global slowdown, it has had an effect. So we are just sort of in caught in that trend and interne- specifically the international investors, the DFIs and so forth are looking at, um, at Africa and say, well, hang on, let's just take a, take a bit of a step back and, and conserve some capital. There are bridge rounds being raised. And that just means instead of raising a series A or a seed A, B, C, which is a priced round where someone puts in, X million dollars for equity. They basically say, well, let's just do a bridge to the next round. Let's put in a an agree, a bit of money, one million dollars or whatever, just to tie these companies over for when they raise again, then we get a bit of a discount on that. So that's happening. I mean, Knife Capital last year, June, you know, we timed it well, I suppose, but by luck, um, it ra- raised a $50 million fund focused majority on South Africa and Africa. We did a, a number of deals. Tasha outsized to be yeah. a deal in the space tech space um, in Stellenbosch. So, so we, you know, deals are happening. I think people are just more looking at capital efficiency, which they should have always have looked at. How do, how do these companies turn the money into revenue? They look at um, robust business models and unit economics. Like how does this thing scale? And I suppose some of it was just hard lessons in a, in a, in a over, overzealous market.
1: Talk to me about what you're doing in San Francisco. Are you there to raise money? Are you there to show off some some investments? what What is on your full day agenda <laughs> today?
6: all of all of the above. It's a long game, you know, so but yeah, mainly we have some board meetings of of one or two of our portfolio companies. There are some international investors over here. It's still the hub of um of 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 venture capital, I suppose specifically when it comes to angel investors and private investors so we've got some of the non-executive board members of some of our companies sitting here and specifically um we have um yeah one of our companies in the health tech space it's a platform for last mile access to health majority um of them of the for female kind of consumers and um yeah we've just got some board strat sessions budget planning you know it's january so we need to make sure that we that we know what we aim for, so that we sit here this time next year, we can do a post mortem and say what did we achieve and how did we how did we look after um, our shareholder funds.
1: Thank you to Kit Van Zel. Kit, of course, is the chief executive at Knife Capital. Talk to us this evening in a crystal clear fashion, all the way from San Francisco in the United States. And yeah, it is. I mean, we we get these pullbacks. The world has, you know, the wine guys, WOSA, what um wines of South Africa talking last night about just how tough the environment is in terms of the inflationary environment and people's got people got less money to spend. And it's not just here, it is in many parts of the world and the tech sector in Africa and other parts of the world feeling it too
0: the money show with Bruce Whitfield on 702
1: let's walk the
0: talk on nights 2.7 and 106 FM
1: if somebody offered you the opportunity to walk again say you'd had a spinal injury or serious injury or you were at risk of dementia and they said to you there's a chance that if we put this computer chip into your brain we can improve your medical outcomes I'd do it I think I would. Um, certainly, there is some ex- very exciting work being done on that front. We'll talk about that this evening here on The Money Show. APSA CIB, the bank that provides a customised treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting, is proud to bring you The Money Show. APSA is a registered FSP. Uh, we've also got to talk to Diana Games uh, from Africa at Work. It's a business consultancy. And then, how do you handle the transition to retirement? Warren Ingram, the co-founder of Galileo Capital, i talked to a lot of people over time. Time who looked forward to retirement day and I, I remember saying to a chief executive once and i said so you know you're retiring and he said yes thank goodness went, what do you mean and he was just like i've had enough i'm out the moment i turn 60 the moment the board will let me go i am out and i was quite taken aback by this i just thought have you hated your career so much that you want to escape it and I don't know what's happened to him. I think he went off riding bicycles or something for a while. But um, it's just that it's that dreadful realisation that you get to an age, in most cases it's still a ridiculously young age of 60, um, and then you get pensioned off. And many people can't afford, most people in proper jobs can't afford to, to be pensioned off, and so they've got to find other things to do. So Warren Ingram on that tonight here on The Money Show. The Money Show.
0: With Bruce Whitfield on 702.
1: 702. Our signals feature this evening a strong future playing out, and it's playing out particularly today in the, the successful implantation of a wireless chip into a human brain. Elon Musk's Neuralink company said it's got promising brain activity which has been detected after the procedure and the patient is recovering well. The company's goal is to try and connect human brains to computers to help tackle some really complex neurological conditions. And now, Neuralink is not the first. Stephen Ambrose is the managing director at drinsight.tech. And it's newsworthy because, Stephen Ambrose, it's Elon Musk rather than it's something that is brand new. But it's clearly a sign of things to come, I would think.
4: Well, good evening, Bruce. And, yeah, this is a super exciting sort of place where the human and the technology starts blending into a cyborg-type uh, science fiction picture. But in many ways, it's a little bit more mundane than that right now. Essentially, Neuralink is a brain-computer interface chip. So what they're trying to do is that you can think it and a machine will do it. That is the core of what they are trying to do at this stage. But the but the the chip itself and the little tiny hair-like fronds that they've created that picks up energy or information from your brain and allow some computer or some machine to do some work can open up enormous possibilities. You've got a broken uh, back. You cannot walk. You're wearing a machine. You can then control the machine with your brain. You could potentially walk again. So it is absolutely science fiction, and the fact that they're now doing human trials really does take us to the next level. So if you can think it and your brain can do it, um, then a machine... And the whole combination of machines and human brain becomes a really massive area of technology, a massive area of medicine, and pretty much anything is possible. Obviously, there are massive technical, ethical, and other regulatory issues around this. but still, it is. We're living in the time of
1: science fiction. No, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. I mean, uh, someone might be perfectly comfortable with a chip implant to help stave off dementia, for example, or maybe very comfortable with a chip implant to see a kid walk again or an adult walk again. Um, there have been some astounding successes. Uh, a team in Switzerland enabled a man to walk again simply by changing it the way he thought. And they uh, put electronic implants in his brain and his spine, and then wirelessly they were He was able to communicate the thoughts of, I need to lift my left leg and left leg lifts and left my right leg lift, right leg lifts and got to walk once again. It's an astonishing development. It really is. And uh, I I was interested to say this is the beginning of a cyborg era. At this stage, it's a beginning of (laughs) magical medical breakthroughs, it would seem.
4: (laughs) Well, it's hard to separate the two. True. I mean, technology, artificial intelligence, microchips and all the other elements of computing and interface. But it all begins with an interface. Right now, your brain is a uh, sort of organic. The, the, The messages that it creates are sent through your nerves and your nervous system. And you always use physical touch, sight, voice to communicate with machines. But now, if you can do that without any form of other connection other than simply thinking about it or wanting to do it, Of course, you can then connect to a machine that helps you walk, it helps you think. And in fact, the ultimate sort of science fiction is how do they improve your capacity to do things and to think? So enhanced brain power is possible through this type of of technology. And it all starts somewhere. And you've got to understand Mr. Elon Musk always seems to start with big goals and big projects.
1: No, exactly right, and it is exciting. But in, in the same way as I might be comfortable with somebody getting a chip implant to help them, you know, to walk again, are we as comfortable, with, for example, enabling rich kids to do maths better? You know, uh, there are we've got to create some boundaries, I suppose, as to what we can and, and that is where the ethical
4: mm. and that's where the ethical and regulatory and the management of this process. But ultimately, if you can enhance memory, enhance cognitive function, improve eyesight. These are goals that are are well within the context of what people want to do. So if you can make someone see again who couldn't see, why can't you make them see better than they saw before? It is a slippery slope, and it's incredibly difficult to manage and understand. But generally, this type of technology, I think it's going to bring enormous benefit to humanity. It'll bring enormous benefit to those that previously and there are many, you know, neurological diseases where people are trapped in their head; they cannot speak. Um, and I believe this is definitely the beginning phase of a whole new style or type of machine combined with human technology. That that is very really difficult to to separate from being the cyborg. But yeah, you're correct. It's 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 a tough one. You don't want the advantage to become more advantaged than the disadvantage. To watch. Absolutely. sort of super race Emerge.
1: However, imagine if a Stephen Hawking could have had a better quality of life rather than be trapped in that chair and being able to communicate more clearly. Can you imagine and what he could do? Exactly. And, the, and to be able to do it and to take it so to to improve his natural ability to apply his enormous brain. And I think he must have been hugely frustrated. I mean, he was a, a naughty blighter and he made lots of practical jokes. So I forget who he pretend, pretended to die in front of, but he gave somebody a heart attack. Um, you know, he said he had a sense of humor. He was wicked and he was very, very clever, but his body let him down. <laughs> <laughs> and eventually he died at a fairly young age as a result of of his affliction. And you, you wonder what the application of this would be in future Stephen Hawking sort of scenarios where you can genuinely improve people's health outcomes.
4: And exactly. that. And the point is computing, the power of artificial or machine intelligence, and the just general sort of level of, of combination of how you can enhance a biological being like a human being, in many different ways and really come up with new ways to either improve life, improve uh, comfort, or even intelligence, it starts becoming, uh, as I say, it it actually feels like we're living through science fiction. But the sheer technology involved in Neuralink and many other platforms that are similar is just mind-blowing
1: but it's something that advances at the speed of science which is not necessarily equated to the speed of light science is more painful and more deliberate and uh, again the the process of this is trial and error as you go through it um you know we we talk about this magnificent future yet it's probably not in the immediate present that we'll have widespread access to these technologies to create better outcomes
4: no question. As I said, the, mon- the truth is much more mundane. This brain computer interface is to uh, allow you to get your mouse to move on a screen. Um, maybe you work a little voice computer if you somehow lost the ability to speak. So it, it, it's still feeling very much a mundane direct interface between a, a standard computer and a human being who somehow lost the use of his hands, for example. So this, there, there are a lot of very basic uses in the normal style of technology they, they're always leaps and those leaps come at random times no one can actually predict when they'll come and when they come they can do the most incredible things but just the science of implanting a, a device that can read your brain and transmit that in a way that the machine can then do something with it is is just mind-bogglingly complex and incredible technology in and of itself the future will be the future, but there's no question this is the beginning of connecting your brain to a whole universe of different things that it can do that were not possible before and that is the key to the whole the whole science around this
1: Stephen Ambrose, thank you managing director at Tech. our signals feature on a Tuesday night it allows us to play in the world of the surreal, the fascinating and The Wondrous.
0: The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield
1: is brought to you by APSA CIB. The bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage FX risk and reporting. APSA a registered
0: FSP. The Money Show. The Africa Business Report.
1: The Africa Business Report brought to you by SAA. Connecting Africa one flight at a time, now flying to Perth. Australia. Um, Burkina Faso, remember, is perceived to have the same level of corruption as us in the Corruption Perceptions Index. It's also got a military dictatorship. And Niger, Mali and Burkina Faso have announced they want to leave ECOWAS. And it's a big blow, potentially, to uh, the, the region. Let's talk to Diana Games about that, chief executive of the business consultancy Africa at work, first explain ECOWAS, then explain why it is, Diana, Niger, Mali, and Burkina Faso want out.
7: Well, um, good, good evening, Bruce. Um, ECOWAS is a it's a fifteen uh, member, uh, member uh, block across across West Africa, and it includes all countries all the way up to you know Senegal, etc., around to Nigeria, and of course those three countries themselves. Um, uh, which were among the founding members of ECOWAS in 1975, so um, they, they have a long history there. But obviously, under a democratic rule at the time, so yeah, they've made this announcement, and they say it's with immediate effect. Of course, that's not possible because legally there are processes. Although I guess when you're a coup leader, you know, the issue of process and 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 uh, rule of law is, is not necessarily top of mind. But um, so so the idea is that they they I think they they're all suffering under ECOWAS sanctions. These sanctions are are, are quite Quite broad. They are. uh, uh, They're affecting development aid. They're affecting trade across borders. Even financial services. Uh, The regional. There's there's uh, strong regional banks in the in the uh, in the Ecowas Union, and these are um, also affecting all kinds of uh, transactions and so on. So there's no doubt that they are they are suffering. Um, and but but I think that, that they actually now feel that that they, they there's no way forward for them because Ecowas will not back off on this on the on the coup, you know that that would set an unfortunate precedent for a region that's already suffered from coups over many decades now. Um, so so they want the the, the 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 status quo, but they also don't want the sanctions, and I think they are just looking at a way to find a sort of a third way out of this thing. And and that would be to set up what they call the Alliance of Sahel States and presina you know, other countries might join that should it go ahead like chad etc and of course russia is very much in the mix there and they're looking for new partnerships outside the western uh, nations and outside uh, west africa which the countries many of the countries in west africa are quite aligned to the us europe etc in terms of trade and and sentiment and and various other ways so so that's that's where we are now and i mean uh, i think the point is that um uh, you know what does what does Ecowas do? And then it turned out actually that um, on the, that last a couple of days ago there was due to be a meeting to discuss the way forward with Ecowas, and for some reason the Ecowas. Uh, team did not uh leave nigeria because the plane didn't work <laughs> i don't know this is um yeah. I, I don't know the details of that but they never got to Niamey for the for the talks and i think it uh, uh niger was really angry and said look this shows that ECOWAS doesn't mean business nobody pitched up for these talks and this seems to maybe be a, a reaction against that particular issue so it's too early to say what happens next i mean uh, um i don't think ECOWAS is in a position to to say that's fine, the the coup leadership is fine, we'll go ahead with this and we'll drop our sanctions, because that's just not how it works. Um, but, But there might be a third way. I mean, I don't know. You know, coups if you look at the, the the sanctions that ECOWAS has imposed uh Mali had a coup in, in the, the from in 2020 which is some years ago now and the sanctions has not changed that situation um and similarly Burkina Faso in 2022 Niger is the sort of new kid on the block relatively speaking so it doesn't seem like these sanctions are working so perhaps there is a third way I don't know what would that yeah. would be and that needs to be thrashed out but I think it's certainly um quite destabilizing for the for the region and uh, they do have to figure out a way forward so we'll see what what actually happens because you've got another problem and that is the spread of islamic Insurgencies across yeah.
1: um, the health. It's it, it's an astonishing. I mean, and these are small economies. These make up what eight percent of GDP of the region of ECOWAS So, they, economically, it's not a massive body blow to ECOWAS but it is a long-term destabilizer. Um, and it does mean that you know, governance becomes more difficult. It does mean the borders become more porous. It does mean that there's just makes it that much more complicated for uh, for for people to to live their lives and to to function effectively.
7: And also remembering that you know we, the borders are porous, so there's been there is a lot of trade and and stuff that happens across those borders, which is still happening, but to a much lesser degree. And as I said, you've got the security angle, which is you know Islamic insurgency already, according to reports, kind of starting to target northern the northern regions of Cote d'Ivoire, of Togo, Benin, etc. So because you know they've they, they they're able to to work their way through these three countries, which essentially formed a barrier between. The, the Sahel proper and the, and the and the bottom end, if you like, of of West Africa. So so that is another concern is whether you're seeing insecurity going to spread as a result because these countries are, are not able to contain it on their own. It seems I mean, 40 percent of Burkina Faso is already occupied by Islamists, uh, Islamist Islamist uh, insurgents uh, apparently. So yeah, so there's a lot of issues there and 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 also we're talking about um, regional projects, the trans sahara um, gas pipeline is meant to be, um, uh, the, the the planning is all, I think, well underway to run from uh, Nigeria, which has a huge amount of ga- natural gas, through Algeria into Europe. And that project needs to uh, run, uh, run through Niger. So what would happen with that? Is it going to affect other um, Uh, projects that have already been funded etc infrastructure and so on um you know it's it's not to say that they can't deal with these countries even if um even if they do break away but it does depend on how the sanctions um is applied or whether it's withdrawn if there if if there's anyway it's, it's hard to say it's very early days so but it is an interesting breaking story i must say
1: it most certainly is, Diane, and a very thorough um, explanation of it. Thank you. Um, the Italy-Africa summit. Italy, of course, once a colonizer, it. it wasn't vastly influential on the African continent. It, it did um, it, it have control of Abyssinia today, Ethiopia, at one point. Um, what is it hoping to achieve with an Italy-Africa summit? Well, I think
7: the interesting angle on this story is. is um they are looking to see how you know to to improve um to invest in Africa in a, in an attempt to to stop the um, huge migrant populations moving from Africa through Italy or into Italy um, on on boats from from North Africa etc illegal immigration. Um, and so they've pledged an initial six billion dollars and they have a plan to um you know to, to in various sectors energy climate um agriculture et cetera and I think what's interesting about that is is to try and nobody's really talking about stopping this problem at source and I don't know whether six billion dollars is actually enough or what, what what grand plan they have that that would 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 make that happen but i think it's a it's maybe started people thinking about looking at this problem in another way, in a way that our African leaders do not seem to be. And there seems to be a, 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 a kind of a, a lack of concern about not just the, the high levels of illegal immigration, but also the, 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 the loss of skills, professional skills from Africa to other countries, which has been ramped up. I mean, there's a, as as European countries and others are seeking new new um, labor skills and things like that they, they're tapping Africa and people are going you know so there's a there's quite a brain drain going on and we just seem to be sitting on our hands in Africa um, about this issue well that's how it appears from the outside anyway so um, it's be interesting to see. I mean, I don't think that 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 Italy on its own can can solve this problem. But uh, they, uh, I guess they feel they have to do something. There's quite a pushback in Italy. You know, people just, just kind of just pouring off these boats onto Italian beaches and so on, and moving their way into Italy and and, and further into Europe. Um and, and I think it's it's been it's been sort of tolerated for a long time, but certainly if you look at social media, there's been quite a pushback on on that. And um I guess the government of Italy feels that they need to do something. And yeah, uh, it's interesting to see. I mean, the African Development Bank, there were 20 odd African leaders there, um, which doesn't seem a lot if you compare it to Russia, China, and the places um those kind of uh, uh, conferences that we've also seen. But um but there were African Development Bank and other financial institutions and and, and people were there so a lot of deals were being looked at on the sidelines of the conference and I think this is always a good opportunity for even though Africans say why are we always trekking to these other countries why are they not coming to us if they want to do business in Africa but nevertheless I I think these things are are, are certainly worthwhile and we have to look at all the opportunities we can as, as Africans to see how we can develop that would be certainly my view.
1: What was the one thing Vali Musa did as environment minister many, many years ago? We remember him for one thing, um, other than the skinny dipping in a a mountain stream, which was, I thought, you know, a nice touch. But he banned plastic bags. I mean, he was the guy, I think, who started the plastic bags ban. He gave us some notice and then put a charge on the plastic bags. It hasn't been a massively successful way of uh, alleviating South Africa's litter problems. But Lagos State has just gone unilaterally and gone, no more plastic bags from now. And it's, I think, a very strong, strong statement to try and fight the scourge of litter. One wonders if it is you know, being thought through and how practical it is.
7: It's not unusual in Nigeria. It seems to be a way that things happen: is to is to slap a ban on things that don't work or, or where there are problems, and then kind of walk away and let everybody sort out the turbulence that follows. You've seen it in trade, and we've seen it in other policy areas. So it doesn't come as a big surprise, really. But in this case, yes, the commissioner for the environment in, in in Lagos State um issued an immediate ban i think it was just over a, a week or 10 days ago saying no more single use plastics and particularly um uh, identified styrofoam saying that this is this is the most um ubiquitous of these and it's and it's very hard you go, it's impossible to sci- to recycle and it's one of the cheapest so everybody uses it and the city is covered with litter and the and the sea the beaches are oh. full of litter um, and there's very little recycling going on and so on Um, But also you get a lot of informal food. I mean, Lagos uh, is this kind of city state with 20 million odd people crowded in there it's it's high it's densely populated and you get a lot of food is is a big thing in nigeria and, and there's a lot of kind of food takeaways uh, lots of them just on the street or, or informal in, in people's rooms of houses and things like that so there's a lot of takeaway food that happens and um so this has become a real problem and as we've started seeing in south africa as well it's the drains are blocked you know uh, if, uh, in in the rainy season and, and the rain is considerable during the rainy season in, in lagos there's just flooding everywhere because the these drains are all completely blocked up with all this stuff and there's been no real attempt to to do anything about it There's been no messaging about about litter and so on. So the problems just got worse and worse and Nigeria um, is, is a big importer of plastic Al- alongside by the way um, South Africa and Egypt those are the three biggest um, importers of plastic into in in Africa and and um, uh so so and, but there's no plan to you know, as I say, the recycling initiatives are already slow and very small. Um and, and there, there's no bigger plan. There's been no sensitization or build up to this ban. It just was it was implemented overnight. And and I think that um you know, the idea is that a lot of people uh, have livelihoods in this value chain. So whether it be the people who, who make and serve the food or the people who make the stuff that the food served in, I mean, there's a huge, probably millions of people, I would say, in that chain, suddenly overnight are, are being criminalized, you know, with no warning. And of course, that's not the way to to implement this. Mm-hmm. Then there's a resentment about this, yeah, trying to find their ways around it rather than embracing it. So, um, yeah, I, I think it will be a long term process to, to really get it implemented. But you've got to start somewhere and i think that might be a lesson for south africa to think about as you say i mean a tax on plastic bags is not changing people's mindsets you know really
0: the money show personal finance with warren ingram
1: personal finance brought to you
7: by bidvest
1: bank bidvest bank built for your business warren ingram a director at galileo capital also of course, a certified financial planner. We talk about a transition to retirement. And I remember a really evocative piece that I read probably 15 years ago, maybe even more, Warren, about um, a couple the the writer. And I forget who the writer was, but the writer had um, spoken to the owner of the local spa in George or one of those places down at the Cape Coast. And he would say so many people. Um arrive, and when they arrive, they arrive in a new car that they have bought for their retirement, and they come shopping on a Friday, and they buy beautiful wine and lovely cheeses and then 15 years later and the the example here was a couple arrived with a brand new Toyota Cressida um, because that was I think the the retirement vehicle of choice. (laughs) It wasn't too flashy, completely reliable and you knew it would last you a long time and you still see when you go to uh, these retirement events in in the Winelands in particular, somebody's going to come up in a a very well maintained Toyota Cressida Um, and um, these people would arrive in the Toyota Cressida, do their lovely shopping and then 15 years later, there's this little old couple. They're still turning up in the Toyota Cressida, which is a little worse for wear and got rust spots because they've been living next to the ocean. And the basket that they're buying doesn't include the nice cheeses anymore. It doesn't include the lovely snacks. It doesn't include the expensive wines. It's a far more post-parsimonious little basket because they they started at 120 Ks an hour in their retirement. And, you know, it had to slow down to 60, 50, 40, 30. Um, and it's, a, I think, a very common story, but it's a sad story of people who work so hard all their lives and then suddenly realize that they didn't do the transition to retirement properly.
8: Absolutely right, Bruce. And, and, uh, and you know, and I think the the, the mistakes are, are either that, so, so they overspend, Early on, and and then have deep regrets late in in their retirement, or they go the other way, where they're so terrified of running out of money, and and so they they live a really compromised life very early on in retirement. Where, where you know, I mean, I kind, of, kind of one of the comments I hear a lot is, "I've only got outgoings now; I've got no more incomings." You know, in other words, no money coming in except from our assets, and you know, not from my labour anymore. And all I've got is money going out, and I need to be careful, and I shouldn't spend, and and, and so w- w- you're right that the transition is really stressful for a lot of people, and and I find uh, that that transition takes about two years psychologically for people to go from being you know full time, fully employed, you know really busy uh, to to then in a space where they're they're now calmer and and understanding what life is all about, and and that two year period. Uh, you know, you, you see so many cases of uh, you know, kind of a little bit of depression, or or relationships get under strain, and and the finances uh, are often a cause of that. So, I, I mean, I think the trick w- when you're when you're leading up to this is start by understanding w- what life will look like. On you, you know, let, let's say the first three months' Bruce, will be exciting and fun and you know you should set aside money for that you know go on the trips that you that you've wanted to go on that, that just took a bit too long while you were working and do do all that by all means you know j- just set aside some money for it but then plan what that first monday looks like after your first three months or four months uh, and, uh, understand what it looks like in in terms of how you're going to spend money where you're going to spend the money and and be realistic with a uh, w- w- with that kind of a spending plan and and realistic is double-edged sword here. Don't don't be too conservative and too cautious where you've worked for 30 years and and now live this really compromised, very simple uh, and maybe, and, you know, simple's not a bad thing, but but sometimes very compromised life where you don't need to. So, so be realistic. But but on the other side, please don't go and splash and buy the new Toyota Crescita, uh, uh, you know, every three years impressing your friends because, you know, that's not going to help you either. Uh, you know, I, th- I think they're collector's items now, so you're really going to splash out. <laughs> no, absolutely. But it is that that sense of realism. And
1: also, I, I find, I've spoken to many people who have had the hard stop on career. They've gone from being supremo the one day. They no longer have a PA. They no longer have people to bark and shout at. And they wake up in the morning and their wife or their husband looks at them and says, so what are you going to do today? And they go, um, I don't know. Because they were just too busy you know, to to think about it. They're like, I'll worry about it when it happens. Then suddenly it happens and then reality sets in.
8: Uh, and and so uh, I have a couple of comments around that. What, one is that you uh, y- you can't uh, define your life by by your career because there'll be a day where there is no career to define you anymore. And and so understanding who you are as a as a person. And I'm, I know I'm sounding like a like a psychologist, and you should get on the couch now, Bruce. But but it's an important psychological transition when you go from being you know flat out as an executive to to suddenly. Uh, you, you know, just, just Warren sitting on the couch, uh, you know, you, you know, hopefully not in your pajamas at, you know, 12 o'clock in the afternoon, but, but, but understanding that, uh, that, that you need to redefine life for yourself and, I mean, the, the most successfully retired people I've seen, and I, and I don't mean successfully just in, in the financial sense, but those that, that really have a meaningful life and, and are happy and, and you know, avoiding depression and all the other horrible things that could happen are are, are those people who've got real purpose and real meaning to to the yeah. time that they spend in retirement. And I think, you know, if, if it's about, uh, if it's about money for example you don't have enough and 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 that would describe most people in the world then just think very carefully about what what that first kind of year of retirement looks like it could be that you're spending time helping small business you know whatever. i mean you've yeah. got experience you've got time you know and find a way to to use your time more productively than than just sitting at home maybe you don't earn so much but but gee you can you can have purpose and meaning and help younger people and smaller businesses whatever the deal is to 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 move their lives forward while giving yourself purpose and that's hugely rewarding and every cent that you're not spending in retirement in other words while you're still able to earn a bit of money, it, it almost has a double whammy because it's coming in r- rather than going out of your bank account on a monthly basis. And it allows your investments to keep growing. So so find and plan for that. Uh, uh, if you can, try and do it t- two years before before you retire. If you've already, you know, if it's around the corner, it's 2024 and, and this is your year, th- then start thinking really seriously about it. Don't put it off until you've done and and then start wondering what to do on that first Monday, three months into your, into your golden period.
1: And I was listening to somebody talking about hobbies the other day, um, and so, you know, your pastimes aren't your hobbies. You need some proper hobbies. You need to be, in, you know, because also, if you deeply immerse yourself in the community in which you live, either you've lived there for a long time and you know everybody already, or you move to a new community with, you know, and and hopefully you find a community of like-minded souls, um, and you start doing the things that old people, older people do. Um, And the reason why people do them is to stay relevant, engaged, interesting and interested in others. Um, And it's just there is it's truly pitiful just looking at people who move to an area and then are quite reticent to muck in and do the charity work or do the hobbies or whatever the case might be. Healthcare coverage is absolutely essential. I mean, it is the must be the biggest drain Certainly, in an environment where the state support isn't what it is in many other countries, in you know, Norway and others, where you can rest assured that you'll be looked after properly in your old age from a healthcare perspective, but you've got to have healthcare coverage. You've got to ensure that this retirement fund of yours um, is big enough to ensure that you can maintain the above inflation increases that are going to follow you throughout your retirement.
8: Yeah, uh, okay. I mean it's one of those things when when you meet people early in retirement. Uh, th- their healthcare, you know, costs, their medical aid or hospital plan or whatever it is that they've got, you know, you know, typically might be, you know, let's say ten percent of their of their monthly expenses. And fifteen years in, twenty years into their retirement, uh, it, it's often thirty or forty percent of their expenses. And and so, you, you know, in the planning phase, you, you know, plan for your your healthcare costs to go up by around nine or ten percent a year. Uh, and and that's not to dismiss what what the normal inflation rate is we 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 could spend uh, decades arguing about what inflation actually is for everybody but just to understand uh, medical aid costs go up at about 9 or 10% a year so if you plan for that now it means you can reallocate costs from elsewhere to to make sure that you've always got health care and, and i think it's something to spend time on with you know just understanding what is it that actually you are covered for and and making sure that uh you know that that in your as you get older and you need to get the cataract operations and the knee ops and the hip replacements and whatever those things are understand all of those things before they arrive on your doorstep and you then have to make a plan in a hurry so so spend the time on it and then Equally, uh, healthcare coverage is not just about the the hospital plan. It's also, uh, you, you know, understanding what happens if, you, you know, if you need to go into frail care, where, where do you go? And, and actually look at it, plan it, and go and see those places, investigate what's required of you to get in there, because unfortunately they're not, not necessarily available when you need them at an, in an emergency. You, you have to plan for that. <sighs> And it's
1: hard. This stuff is because you're facing up to that inevitability. Um, But it's better to face up to it, I suppose, than to live in denial and then wake up one day and go, "Actually, I can't get out of bed in the morning. I need help." Too late. Um, You're not going to get the best help that you could if you if you'd planned it properly. Your investment portfolio, whatever that investment portfolio is, um, needs to be, I'm sure, reviewed and continue to be reviewed uh, as regularly as you did while you were working.
8: I, I think it's one of those things that terrifies me. You know, we've spoken about it on the show many times uh, where, where people believe uh you know that retirement is an end in terms of their investments and and now you know everything needs to change in their investment portfolio and, and i think just to you know just to expand on that if you're if you're in, if you're retired at 65 th- there is a really good chance that if you've got you know just a, a decent uh, a not, not even extra longevity in your family but just normal longevity that 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 you could be a professional investor i.e. a retired person for for 30 years and and so to de-risk all of your investments to move everything to cash or or extremely low risk fixed deposit t- type investments uh, what will, will give you enormous amount of certainty, and and it will feel great for the first three or four years, and then by year seven you realize that the buying power of your money has has evaporated, and and then you've made a, a, a really a, you know a, a almost fatal error in your investments. You, you need to understand if you if you're investing for thirty years, th- then you need to have a large exposure to to global stock markets and the South African market because that's what's going to give you. The inflation protection, and that's the thing that allows you to keep carrying those costs that, that escalate as you, as you get older. W- without that, uh, th- those growth assets of the stock market, y- you could find yourself in real trouble and never once having seen a big loss in your portfolio, just simply the buying power of your money being eroded by you know, an excess of caution.
1: Uh, And again, just that maintenance of the disciplines of budgeting, the maintenance of the accounting, the maintenance of keeping a check on your expenses, ensuring that you don't go, oh, you only live once. Come on, let's go bungee jumping every third weekend, whatever the case might be. You know, those expensive pastimes that very quickly eat through your money. Um, You you do have to have a, a, a discipline that allows you to have some fun, but not blow the blow the budget.
8: I, I think it's right, and and um, but but I think we've kind of sketched quite a quite a scary dark picture for, yeah. for for retirement, and I I feel like it's not that you know I think a lot of people you know um, you know I've got a deep affinity for the Karoo and, and part, part of the reason is it's it's really cheap to live in a place like <laughs> the Karoo compared to a big city. <laughs> Uh, I, I, but, I hate the, the environment. Sec- I don't like the people, but my goodness me, it's cheap.
1: Yes, sorry. <laughs> well,
8: well, I do love the people because you you, you, you plug into a community of of uh, probably you know equally misfits, uh, you know, equal misfits who, who who kind of find themselves in a new place and 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 find themselves having to do very similar things to you. And one of the things that happens is you stop having to keep up with the Joneses and the Kamalas. You you suddenly in a position where you go. It's actually about who you are, not the car you drive and the and the fancy house you've got. It's it's about actually who you are as an individual. And and then you go and do things like go on picnics together and go on walks together and and you go and help each other out when someone needs to get driven to the hospital and all those things. And and that's what you get from a community. Uh, so over and above all the real cost benefits of living in a small place, insurance costs and those things, you, you, you get to get an enormous amount of of social capital that that's that I think is invaluable. Uh, and and you don't get that if you don't take the time to explore those things and i think so many of us are fixated on you know i'm going to stay in exactly the same uh, you know city i was in when i when i uh, when i was working i'm going to retire here and i'm i'm going to carry on just as i was and and perhaps it's an isolated existence because you don't have the work network anymore and and, and taking the time to explore other places and and meet like-minded people as you said could involve changing towns but but make sure you you're you're meeting you know, people that you, where you make an effort, join a hiking club. You know, join the gardening club. But w- whatever it is, uh, my wife will be in the gardening club. I know, but but for me, it'll be a hiking club. And you know, you know make up uh, um, activities that don't cost you money, but but build your social capital. I think I think that's really key for for people social at this capital. stage of life. Yeah, social capital, critical one. Thank you, Warren. Uh, a question from
1: Chia Moore this evening. My wife and I have recently had our first child. One of the things I'd like to put in place is a will. Can I use a template from the internet? What would you advise? Good question. Thank you, Chamo. Uh, more with Warren on that question in a moment. The Money Show.
0: Personal Finance with Warren Ingram.
1: APSA CIB the bank that provides a customized treasury tool to manage foreign exchange risk and reporting is proud to bring you the money show APSA is a registered FSB well chamo is wanting to download an uh, a will template off the internet and I understand why Chiamor wants to do this if you start going off to get somebody to help you draw up a will they start saying well we'll be your we'll we'll be the uh we'll, we'll be the, the executives. What, what, executor, thank you, and we will take 3% of the value of your estate. It may not seem like very much, especially when you're young. You go, oh well, <laughs> of course, all the admin is gone, but Chiamu's w- wised up to that um, and has gone, I want to do it myself. I wonder if that's wise.
8: Um, I, I, I mean, to, to, to start with the good, the good is that was thinking about a, a will, uh, w- w- which I, I estimate at least half of new parents in South Africa don't have a will, which is terrifying. Uh, so, so absolutely, Jamo, you need a will, uh, you you know, and, and I think almost any adult in South Africa needs a will irrespective of whether they do or don't have children or or aren't married, uh, but, but let's just talk about the simple the, 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 sim, the, the simple reason, sorry, sorry one the simple reason why Warren is being
1: dogmatic about this, is that the master's office is chaotic enough. Even in the best planned estates, it takes three years to tidy up an estate. And it is no matter how much forward planning you've done, just to do all of the admin takes about three years. If you don't have a will, I hate to think how long it takes. Don't do that to
8: people who should be your you're very heartbroken grateful beneficiaries well, yeah and and you know so, so even if you're sitting there and and you, you, you're listening to this and you say well I, I don't i don't have any assets i have no money uh w- what your will also does is to is spe- specify how are you going to be buried are you going to be cremated and you know the, the last thing you want is you, you know your your least favorite aunt who's now Got the the deciding power to have you buried under a tree, or you know, in, in in next to the sewage plant, that because she also didn't like you. So so you need to put this in in, in your you, wall. you need her? to make sure yeah. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so so this is key, Chiamo, and and uh, and then as Bruce says, the. Uh, Master's office is a disaster zone, uh, and and so people who deal with estates, I think the staff turnover of of estate divisions is enormous because I think there's kind of people are operating on on the verge of nervous breakdown all the time, just trying to get the master's office to do something to move things forward, and on the other side of the phone, they've got really distraught, distressed families begging for uh, for progress, begging for estates to be wound up. So. What what you don't want to do, Chiamo, is go and get a template off the the, the internet. The the world might uh, what you need to understand about the law around wills is it's actually quite specific there are quite a lot of terms and conditions about what specifies a a, a real will as opposed to one you know that you think might be fine you, you, for, you need witnesses it needs to be done in original signature you can't just you, you know you know get it done on on some docu sign or whatever it is uh, on the internet you need you need things done correctly and and then you know wills need to be updated the laws are changing a lot so relying on a template i think is crazy uh, uh, i think you do need a will and that's a great step Uh, what you can do is you can pay uh, um, uh, uh, many lawyers and accountants will do this there there are even some uh, businesses that will will do wills for free Um, as Bruce said sometimes they want to be appointed as the executor but but very often you could say look I'm going to appoint a a family member as an executor and and they're allowed that that family member is allowed to appoint an agent in, in in a usually a law firm to then execute the estate on your behalf, so so you can negotiate fees, uh, you know th- that executor. So you don't need to get stuck in with the law firm that says I'm going to charge a fortune uh, upfront to draft the will, and then I'm going to be the executor. All of those things are, are negotiable. But I, I would, I would really suggest you pay you know a few hundred rand, or maybe one or two thousand rand. Uh, to to get a will drafted and then by all means specify who you would like to be the executive of your state. Please talk to them first uh, and and then uh, make sure that that will stays current and updated if you have more children into the future. but But whatever you do, yeah. make sure that this is done properly. And if you're planning on having more children, then just talk about your children in the will. Don't talk
1: about names specifically. Um, say you know any any whatever the legal speak is for children. Any um, issue? I think beneficiaries. <laughs> <or, laughs> yeah, it's just a dreadful. The the the, the legal ease around the stuff is dreadful. Um, but but keep it fairly generic. Keep it fairly general. And lawyers are pretty good at this stuff. They 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 do this for a, for a living. So don't be a cheapskate now, because being a cheapskate now at this particular point. Um, Warren can become very expensive for your estate, and and time consuming for your estate, and distressing for the beneficiaries of your estate into the future.
8: You, you leave behind such a mess. You know the last the last thing that a lot of people remember about you will be an incredible mess, which could have been avoided with a little bit of planning, a little bit of upfront. Uh, thought and, and yes, a little bit of money. Uh, and 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 then it you know it saves a lifetime of hassle and potentially enormous amounts of tax into the future because the, as Bruce says, these people know what they're doing. They're accustomed to to seeing the problems and and so spend the time, use the expert and and, and get it done right. Warren Ingram, he's a certified financial planner. He's a
1: director at Galileo Capital. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield was brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking, bringing you award-winning trade and working capital funding solutions to unlock the full potential of your business story.
8: APSA is a registered FSP.